Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let's pray before we go to God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you open our eyes and our hearts to your Word. And uh, in a very familiar passage in many ways, uh, may we allow your Word to be a mirror to show us ourselves uh, in light of the personalities that we will encounter in this text, that we might indeed walk in humility and not in pride and be more like Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, called it the great sin. And I think he did so with good reason. After all, it is this sin that led Satan to fall from heaven. It is this sin that caused Adam and Eve to be banished and driven out of the garden. Concerning this sin, Lewis said, and I quote, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. If you would like to see this vice on display with crystal clear clarity, perhaps no text in scripture is more uh, appropriate then Daniel chapter 5 and the story of the handwriting on the wall. If you would, join me there. Uh, Daniel 5 is located very interestingly in the book of Daniel. Those who've studied the book of Daniel know that beginning in chapter 2 and verse 4 and going through chapter 7 and verse 28, the author, I believe Daniel, shifts from using Hebrew to Aramaic, which at that time was the international language under the rule of uh, of the Babylonians. 
And it's also very interesting to see how the text is structured there because clearly there is a chiastic arrangement. You say, how so? Well, in Daniel 2, you have a vision uh, of a great statue. In Daniel 7, you have another vision of four great beasts. In chapter 3, you have a story of faith and deliverance, the fiery furnace. And in chapter 6, you have a story of faith and deliverance with Daniel in the lion's den. And so in this chiastic arrangement, when you come to the apex of it, you have the chapters four and five standing there. Chapter four talks about the great pride and the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter five talks about the story or gives us the story of Belshazzar and his humbling. And chapter five makes a whole lot more sense when you read it in context And take note of the final verse in chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar, after being humbled by the God of heaven, the Most High God, says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And now look at this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And then we move immediately into the story of Belshazzar. Here's the quick historical context. The Babylonians, of course, are the ruling world empire. Three times they invaded Israel and deported citizens from Israel. In 586, they destroyed the temple and Israel was laid waste. Nebuchadnezzar will reign until 562 when he will pass from the scene uh, through death. There'll be a succession of kings following him, none of who matched up to his leadership skills and ability. And so approximately 20 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, suddenly out of nowhere in Daniel chapter five, we are introduced to the last king in the Babylonian empire, a lightweight by the name of Belshazzar. And he is about to learn the hard way, the truth of chapter four and verse 37. Those who walk in pride, our God is able to humble. Now, as we walk through chapter five, I know the inclination in my heart is probably the same as yours. Uh, You want to identify with Daniel. And of course, there's a sense in which we should identify with Daniel and learn from his example. But I would want us this morning to think a little bit more in the direction of, am I a Belshazzar? Am I someone who walks before the Lord in pride or humility? Am I the type of person that God wants to lift up because of my humility? Or am I the type of person that God wants to take down because of my pride, because I have an opinion of myself that is way out of proportion with who I really am before God. There are four movements to this text. We're gonna have to move quickly because there are 31 verses, so let's jump right in. And note with me, first of all, in the first four verses. God sees our sin when we mock his glory. Chapter five, verse one, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar made a great feast. Now that's a very polite way of describing what he did. In my Bible, I have written the word orgy. 
because this was a mammoth orgy that is taking place, by the way, on the very last night of the Babylonian Empire. Makes it very ironic when you begin to think of what is about to happen and how the scene unfolds. And so King Belshazzar made a great feast and he did so for a thousand of his lords and he drank wine in front of the thousand. That's unusual. Uh, most of the time, the king would not uh, display himself in that kind of manner before his common folks. But in this particular occasion, uh, Belshazzar wants to be the focal point. Uh, he wants to get all the attention. Uh, he wants to be put on display. And so he sets up this great feast and invites a thousand of his lords to be a part of this great feast, this great orgy. Well, drinking uh, is going fine and uh, debauchery is reigning supreme. And so Belshazzar gets a little loose. Uh, he gets a little unwise in his judgment. And so in verse two, uh, when he tasted the wine, he decided, let me command that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, my father, his father, and actually he was his grandfather. Uh, we know from the Bible that many times when we talk about being the son of someone, doesn't mean that you're directly the descendant of that particular person. It could be your grandfather or your great-grandfather or your great-great-great-grandfather. And so he's simply noting that he is in that line of Nebuchadnezzar, he decides that the vessels of gold and silver that had what? Been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines, so he's got uh, his many wives, he was a polygamist, he's got his concubines, uh, his sex toys, and he brings all of them together, brings in the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they now add a religious component to it. They praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. He begins by treating the things of God as common. These are just regular, normal utensils that we use anytime we sit down to, to have a meal or, or to take a drink. He, he, he debases them in that initial kind of a way, but he doesn't stop there. He then adds a religious component to it. After all, his gods are superior to Yahweh. Yahweh went down in 605 and then again in 597 and decisively in 587, 586. It's very clear uh, that Marduk is far superior and the pantheon of gods here in Babylon are far superior to that little piddly nation of Israel and its single God that no one has ever seen or, seen or heard from. And so he goes as far as he can in uh, mocking, if you like, the one true God, which is something that happens with great regularity in our own day as well. In verse four, when I read it, I, I could not help but think it sounds like uh, an Olympic medal ceremony because they're uh, praising the gods of the gold, uh, they're praising the God of the silver, and they're praising the God of the bronze. Evidently, they uh, left out for ancient metal gifts, iron, wood, and stone, and we have followed in their footsteps as well. Here's the bottom line. I think Belshazzar thought that what he was doing just was going along unnoticed. 
This God of Israel is a invisible God. This God of Israel is an impotent God. This God of Israel cannot stack up with my gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. In other words, the things of this world are indeed my gods. Why would I give a passing thought to a God up there, out there who doesn't care? Well, I've got news for Belshazzar and I've got news for you and me. God sees our sin when we mock his glory. Number two, God confronts our sin and we should tremble when he does. Verse five turns the tables immediately. Uh, Suddenly, as some translations have it, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And again, I think verse six is probably one of the great understatements in all the Bible. Then the king's, number one, color changed. Number two, his thoughts alarmed him. And number three, and I love this, I will unwrap it for you a little bit more in a moment. His limbs gave way. And number four, his knees began to knock together. Brothers and sisters, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you dull. I am 59 years old now, and throughout my life, I've watched men in particular do things that were just downright stupid because of sin. Very clear that their heart was not right, but when the heart is not right, the mind also goes astray as well. Sinclair Ferguson, wonderful Presbyterian pastor in commenting on this particular aspect of this story says, Belshazzar is perhaps the supreme Old Testament parallel to the rich fool in Jesus's parable. Having already given expression to their lust for more, uh, in the case of the rich fool, his lust for more money, they would never be satisfied without more. Blinded by the pursuit of that lust, They were oblivious to the possibility that this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. So immediately, suddenly the king is brought to his senses. I'm quite sure that Belshazzar set the record for the shortest time it's ever taken a drunk to become sober. It happened, boom, just like that. And from verses five through seven, this man goes from his break with reality to a check with reality. Suddenly, he's yanked into the reality of the seriousness of this particular moment. Now, what yanked him back to reality? Well, the text tells us. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. I think if I was drunk, that'd make me sober. Not that I get drunk, but I can imagine that if I were in a state of inebriation, seeing a hand appear and writing on the wall would probably get my attention, especially when I realized pretty quickly that's the same hand and the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments. I'm not dealing with a weak or impotent God. I'm dealing with the God of heaven and earth who sees and knows everything. And so once more, his um, 
His response is his facial color changes, probably a red flushed face from drinking. Now he's white as a sheet. Uh, his mind went into a tizzy. His thoughts alarmed him. Uh, he went limp and his knees knocked together. Now, let me quote a very outstanding Old Testament scholar by the name of Dale Davis and let him kind of unwrap for us what is taking place here. And he does it in a very colorful way. And I'll add a word of commentary at the end. Very brief word, by the way. Belshazzar's demeaning of Yahweh's vessels was his way of demeaning Yahweh. Belshazzar was not simply a drunken slob. He was a profane slob. So God brought him to almost instant sobriety. However, Belshazzar came unglued. He was seeing the finger of a man's hand writing on the palace wall. He became deathly pale. His thoughts terrified him and uh, his lower body lost all strength. The clear sight and sheer spookiness of those writing fingers produced paralyzing terror. Some think that his limbs gave way, verse six. Literally, the knots of his loins were loosed, which may refer to his losing control of his bladder or his bowels. What we would say is, he wet himself. He messed in his pants. You say, you think that's what the text is saying? I think that's exactly what the text is saying. Unless you think ill of him, just tell me how you might respond. If suddenly a hand appeared in front of your face and is beginning to write on the wall, I think you may have a similar reaction as well. Well, he realizes he's got to get a grip. Uh, he's got to get control of himself. So look at what it says there in verse seven, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters. Here comes his, his PhDs and, and his intellectual elites and his cardinals of counsel and his brain trust. They've been useless already back in chapter two and chapter four. You'd think by now he'd figure out these are a bunch of bozo clowns who are never gonna give me what I need. But no, he goes back to that same dry well. And so he calls for the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the astrologers and he declared to these wise men and here's his promise whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation a word by the way that dominates chapter 5 throughout the 31 verses whoever can show me the interpretation number one shall be clothed with purple number two he'll have a chain of gold around his neck and number three after my father Nabonidus and myself Belshazzar he will become the third ruler in the kingdom and all the king's wise men came in but just like before, they could not read the writing. They could not make known to the king the interpretation. And once again, King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords like him were perplexed. What are we to make of this situation? And you know, it's really interesting to think about it. Belshazzar is at a point in his life where he can make a decision for good or for bad. In other words, God has been gracious to him. You say God scared him to death. Yes, and sometimes God scares us to death to get our attention. 
Sometimes God terrifies us out of grace and goodness because we're about to make a decision that is going to ruin our lives. And maybe it's through the voice of a friend. Maybe it's in a dream. Maybe suddenly you're driving down the road and you ask yourself, what in the world am I doing? When I was here the first time, I was the dean of students. And so I got to deal with student problems quite often. And on one particular occasion, we had a single student that had begun to engage in an affair with a marriage student's wife. So you've got this single student having a sexual relationship with the wife of one of our students. And so uh, came to our attention, we immediately expelled him from school. Uh, he came pleading, uh, I don't have any place to go. I, I need to stay in the men's dorm. And so out of grace or, or foolishness, we said, all right, here's the deal. You can stay for one more month until you get your act together and then you can move on. But it's under one criteria. You can have absolutely no interaction, no contact with this woman. Well, he went about three days and he engaged her in conversation again. So we brought him in and we said, you're out, you're out, you're out today. He said, well, where am I supposed to go? To which I responded, I don't give a rip where you go. I would suggest perhaps Alaska or maybe Antarctica. And he said, well, why would you say a thing like that? And I said, because you're a fool and you can no longer control your emotions. You have become emotionally connected with this woman in this adulterous relationship. And the only way you're gonna extricate yourself from that is to get as far away from here as you possibly can. Now, there were some other conversations that went on that I'll save for another time. Long story made short, he did move back home to South Carolina, very angry with me, very angry with the president at that time, Paige Patterson, felt that we had been unchristian, felt that we had been unlike Jesus, that we had been cruel to him, all that kind of malarkey. Well, I go to Southern Seminary and about five years later, I get a letter from that former student. And he begins by apologizing for his sin. He begins further by apologizing for his reaction to both Dr. Patterson and myself. And then he shared in the letter with me this. He said, on three different occasions, I got in my car in South Carolina to drive back up to Wake Forest to hook up with that girl, that married woman. In each case, after driving somewhere between 30 to 50 miles, I stopped and said to myself, what are you doing? You're about to ruin your life and the lives of others as well. And I turned around and went back. And then he said, Dr. Aiken, thank you for being strong in that situation. It took me between six and nine months to get that girl out of my system, to get my sin right before the Lord. And he had come to a point in his life where he could make a decision that would either lead him in a path of righteousness and holiness, or it would lead him down a road of absolute destruction. And God in his grace many times will get very up close and personal. And he'll scare the daylights out of you because he loves you and he wants you to walk the path that honors him. 
God is actually giving Belshazzar an incredible opportunity. But as we're about to see, he blows it. Number three, God exposes our sin and we are found wanting. God exposes our sin and we are found wanting. I'm gonna move quickly through verses 10 through 28. Kind of do a running commentary along the way. The queen, this is the queen mother, most likely, because after all, we've already been told that all of his wives and all of his concubines were involved in this festival, this feast, this orgy. So most likely it is the queen mother. She shows up because of the words of the king and his lords. And so she came into the banquet hall and she began as we would always do in in this particular context. She gives a word uh, of respect and reverence to the king. O king, live forever. And then she begins to counsel him as a good mother would counsel her son. Let not your thoughts alarm you or let your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Some would even translate it the spirit capital of the holy God. There is ambiguity there in the, in the Hebrew text, but there is one in whom is the spirit of the gods or of the God uh, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, your father, the king, why he made him the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Now, I don't know this, but here's what I think happened. I think Belshazzar, or excuse me, I think Nebuchadnezzar, this is me, actually got converted in chapter four. I think he became a follower of Yahweh. That's what I believe. Many commentators agree with me, some don't. I also think that he had a close relationship with Daniel, but he died. And you have this string of goofy, incompetent, uh, lesser kings until it eventually arrived at the very worst of all, and that is uh, Belshazzar, who actually uh, is serving under his father, Nabonidus, who's away uh, battling and partying and doing the stuff that he was doing. And so most likely, They just kind of sent Daniel into retirement. After all, by this time in the book, he's in his 80s, approaching 90. It's an old man. My goodness gracious, we need young blood. We need new ideas. Old guys need to be put out to the farm. They need to be put into a retirement home. And evidently, that's what they did. But then mama or grandmama, well, mama here, realized, well, you know, there was that guy. I knew him. He he, he He was sharp. He's a lot better than all these bozos that can never answer anything that you actually need. And to be honest with you, she doesn't say this directly, but you're pretty stupid for ignoring him all these years. Well, the fact of the matter is he's still alive. He's out in a nursing home somewhere, but I can bring him back in. And maybe, you know, he can deliver for you like he delivered for your granddaddy on a number of occasions. And so out of desperation, men do desperate things. So verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, little dig here, by the way, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Just keep in mind who kicked whose backside, all right? Whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Well, I've heard of you 
that, and he recounts what uh, his mama just said. The spirit of the gods, they're in you. Light and understanding and excellent wisdom found in you. Now, the wise men, what a joke. The wise men, the enchanters, they've been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But just like before, they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and you can solve problems. And I've got like a really big one right now with his hand thing writing on the wall. And so if you will make known to me the interpretation, what I promise them, I promise you, you get clothed with purple, you're gonna look nice, you get a chain of gold, you're gonna be more wealthy, and I'm gonna make you the third ruler in the kingdom after my father and myself. Now, what a sweet deal. You would think that a wise man would jump at an opportunity like that uh, when presented with such opportunities. But look at how Daniel, the man of God, responds, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, uh, let your gifts be for yourself. I don't want your junk. And give your rewards to another. I don't need your stuff. Give it to somebody else. And again, I could go into a lot of application here. I'll just say this. The man of God plays the fool when he sells his soul to politicians. The man of God will always play the fool when he sells his soul to politicians. And I don't care from which party they come or from which country they come, the man of God always is to be the prophet to the politicians, not their lackey. So Daniel says, keep your stuff. I don't want it. Give your stuff to somebody else. I don't need it. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to him the interpretation, which by the way, that's not a bad uh, description of expository preaching. I will read the writing and I will make known the interpretation. That's a pretty good short definition of expository preaching. Well, he is gonna preach. And so we'll walk through it very quickly. O king, the most high God, and there are five different beautiful descriptions of God in the remainder of this chapter. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship, and he gave him greatness and glory and majesty. God gave it to him. He didn't earn it. God gave it to him. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all the peoples, the nations, and the languages trembled and feared before him. Let me be precise. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he deals, dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew, and that's chapter four, that's chapter four, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and he sets over it whom he will. Again, just be reminded, the president of the United States of America is there today because God put him there. And whoever the president is going to be after November, God will put him or her there. And even though I don't understand the ways of God, the, 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 that, that maniac that rules in North Korea, God put him there. 
Say, God wouldn't put an evil king in power. He put Nebuchadnezzar in power. He put Belshazzar in power. He's going to bring Cyrus into power. God is sovereign. And God puts in places of leadership and authority whom he chooses for his own purposes. And as we've learned from Daniel, in many instances, he does it to discipline his people, to judge his people for their sin and their rebellion and their pride and their arrogancy and their approach to life that says, I don't really need God, except in tight situations. Well, he doesn't work that way. So he takes Nebuchadnezzar down, and then he says there in verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your Lord, your wife, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And in the process, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So here's the deal. From the presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tikal, and Parzin. What they really didn't know was the interpretation. And so here it is. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found warning. You're a spiritual lightweight. Perez, your kingdom is divided and it will now be given to the Medes and the Persians. And as we know, that happened that very night and God exposes our sin. And when he does, we're all found wanting. We're all Belshazzars. Finally, God deals with our sin of unrepentance with appropriate judgment. I think he probably didn't wanna do this, but he had to save face and keep his word. So Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I've been thinking about that. That's kind of like getting promoted to be vice president when you find out the company is about to go bankrupt. That's like getting the Medal of Honor only to find out that you've lost the war. Now we will find out later if you keep studying in Daniel that uh, Darius the Mede, who's probably Cyrus, recognizes the value and wealth, uh, the value and the wisdom of Daniel and also keeps him in a place of prosperity and keeps him in a place of great influence. But when everything is said and done, we see how seriously God takes the sin of pride, don't we? And again, as I said at the beginning, it's very easy, as C.S. Lewis said, to see that sin in the lives of others. It's not so easy to see it in ourselves, which is why daily we need to be in this word, allowing it to be a mirror to show us who we really are, which is why unlike Belshazzar, we need men around us and women around us like Daniel who love us enough to tell us the truth about what they see. It will make you uncomfortable. 
It may make you mad. You probably won't like it. But let's face it, you and I both need it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word about this uh, king that you raised up and then you took him down. And you did so, Lord, because he lifted himself up against you and in essence said, I'm stronger than you, I'm mightier than you, I'm wiser than you. And you said, well, I'll show you what the real situation is. And Lord, again, it's easy for us to look at a Belshazzar and say, well, I sure am glad I'm not like that. But by making that very statement, we sound really a whole lot more like a Pharisee than we do a follower of King Jesus. He was meek and mild and humble. And he set for all of us the example that we are to follow. I look at Daniel and I think he sure is a lot like Jesus. He reminds me if I go back to a man named Joseph, he certainly reminds me of a man named Jesus when I look forward. And so, Lord, may we walk humbly like he did, taking whatever station in life you give us and using that for the advancement of your glory and your kingdom. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.